Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of SA Voices from the Field. Each week we aim to bring you the true stories of student affairs. Over the course of this podcast, we hope to bring you both voices that feel like they are telling your own story and those that bring you stories you've never heard before. The podcast with expert guests and practical advice. Get ready to learn and become the best higher ed professional you can be. Welcome to Student Affairs Voices from the Field. I am your host, Dr. Corliss Bennett, and I am so happy to have you here. This podcast is sponsored by NASPA. Today, I'm really excited to have two colleagues. Why won't you guys introduce yourselves and tell us what campuses you represent? Sure. Thank you, Carlos, and thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here today. Uh, My name is Dr. Mike Stubbleton. I'm a faculty member of higher education in the College of Education and Human Development, and we're located at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities, located in Minneapolis-St. Paul, Minnesota. Wow, it's kind of cold there. (laughs) (laughs) The The time of the year is very cold. Has, I just want to know, has the snow melted yet? Uh, yes, yes, it did. Oh, it, sometimes we get so snow uh, as, as late as May, but it is, it is now gone. See, see. Yeah. As a native Californian, I would not be able to handle that <laughs> at all. Wow. And then, so, okay, so you're faculty of the higher ed program. Yes. Rebecca? All right, I'm Rebecca Layton, and I also work here at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities, and I work at our health clinic. It's called Boynton Health, so it's our on-campus clinic, and within the clinic, we have a public health department, so I'm on the health promotion team, so I generally work on the topic areas of college student food and housing insecurity, as well as do some nutrition health promotion work as well. Wonderful. And tell us a little bit about, and you guys can both chime in, like how many students are at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities? Sure, I I can start and then Rebecca, feel free to jump in. We're a large public research university and we're one of the largest undergraduate colleges, I I think, in the nation, upwards to about over 30 to 35 undergraduate students and another 20 to 25 graduate students. So our total enrollment is upwards to 50,000 students. So we, we are a big campus. Again, we're located here in the Twin Cities, and we have campuses on, in Minneapolis and St. Paul. So we're a big, sprawling uh, institution. Again, we're a large public research one institution. You had asked about demographics. We're a predominantly white institution. Currently, about 75% of our students are white, and we've got about 20 25% students of color, including international and or immigrant students. So that's a snapshot of our demographics. And you said you have several campuses or satellite campuses or just the two? Well, in the Twin Cities, we've got a a Minneapolis and St. Paul campus, and they're like three miles apart, so it's very convenient. We've got shuttle and commuter buses going back and forth. The the Twin Cities is is the flagship university in the University of Minnesota. We have three other campuses outstate in other parts of, of Minnesota, but we're the large Twin Cities campus. So today's topic is food insecurity and hunger on college campuses. And this has really, now I'm not sure before we kind of dive into it, it's really interesting how this has become a problem on all of our campuses. But I feel like it's been around for a while, but maybe because of social media or what do you think makes it all of a sudden we hearing more about it? And maybe you can define it, you know, in the same point, like what is food insecurity, just to make sure we're all on the same page and we're using your definition. Yeah, I can definitely start off with the definition and a little bit of my hypothesis of why it's um, a little more prevalent right now, seeming. 
So first of all, when we talk about food insecurity, we define it as occurring when access to food is limited by lack of money or other resources. And we also like to mention that food insecurity occurs on a spectrum. So with hunger being the most severe manifestation that a lot of us might be more familiar with, but it really occurs on a spectrum. So on the other end of the spectrum is students that might be worrying about where their next meal will come from, worrying about running out of money before they can buy more food, those kinds of, of feelings. And, and I think I've, that food insecurity has probably been around for a long time and, and people experienced it before on college campuses. But some of the things that we do know that's driving it right now is um, kind of the, the changing system that we're under. So tuition has increased rapidly since the 1970s across the nation, not just here in Minnesota. While income is increasing at about half of that rate, family income. So that's one of the changes that's causing this. And then another important factor is that a college degree is so important today now to anything and earn a decent living wage, whereas before, decades ago, you didn't really need that college degree. So now there are more students entering higher education than ever before, and there's a lot of supports for them, which is helpful, but some of it falls short. But that means that we have more what we call non-traditional students, so more students from lower income families or first generation students or students that are parents themselves because they've maybe had returning back to school after being in the workforce. So a lot of that changing demographic, whereas a couple generations ago, college was really meant typically for more students from more privileged or middle to upper income families. Um, so those are some of the, the changing reasons why I think that this is becoming a little more prevalent. And I would just uh, jump in to add to Rebecca's response and say that currently with the food insecurity issue, there's been some critique that, oh, this is just a typical student scenario. We've all been hungry as college students, almost like it's a rite of passage. What we're finding is that it's, it's different now than in, in the past, and that it really is a serious concern for many college students that needs to be addressed. And as Rebecca noted, some of the students that fall along the spectrum, you know, some of them are experiencing hunger. So it's not just that they need a snack at night and they're not able to get it. It's, it's a much more serious problem where some students are actually uh, skipping meals or they don't have enough money for meals to make it through the week. Some of the students, uh, not just here but across the nation, report that they're having to make really important decisions about uh, buying food versus buying textbooks or other uh, expenses. And so we really do feel it's, it's a, a much more serious concern that's garnering more attention now. Um, social media may have something to do with it. I think there are a number of higher ed scholars that are doing great work in, in terms of um, not only researching the problem, but also looking at, at ways to address it. And we'll, we'll get to that later, I'm sure. Well, what is interesting, and Rebecca, when you were talking about the whole, not just access to food, but the worrying part, which is obviously stressful for students. So you, like you said, we have the growing tuition situation um, and all those other factors, but I just feel like, I don't know why, it just feels like it's more in my face now in the last five years than ever. Because I don't, I don't remember in... in um, as far as being a NASPA member since 2000, I don't remember it ever being kind of a topic or a session, you know what I'm saying? And so that's why I felt like, well, is it that social media is showing it more? And then we're hearing, you know, documentaries. I know there was a documentary actually on my school, uh, Cal State Humboldt, about homelessness and food insecurity. So I don't know if it's just the social media has just really, it's just been, it's, to me, it just feels like it's now in my face and I'm always worried about a student. 
Yeah, I think that um, whether it be social media or just the general stigma, so we see this with a lot of issues on campus, specifically on our campus mental health is another one that a couple decades ago, a couple years ago, people were really embarrassed to talk about it or, or felt very stigmatized about having perhaps a mental health diagnosis. And then once people start speaking out about it, whether it be social media or just campus-wide campaigns and normalizing it, um, then more and more people also feel more likely to share their story. And so with food insecurity, um, I think a big part of it is the campus food pantries that started popping up. And once they popped up, then people went to them and, and realized that they weren't really so alone in this issue, um, whereas before they kind of thought, some students talk about how they thought it was just them experiencing this and that they were the only ones worrying about this issue. Um, and then of course, the, re the researchers. So we're really thankful for um, people like Michael Stubbleton and Sarah Goldergrab and some other faculty that are publishing about this and, and looking into it and shining some more light on the issue. And you're right. I want to say that I think when I went on a conference at a campus and they gave us the tour of the cultural centers, because that's my line of work is cultural center work for the last 20 years. They showed us this food pantry and I was like, oh, this is nice. You know, it, I didn't, you know, I just thought it was nice not thinking that it's because that many folks are hungry, which comes to my next question. What is the current prevalence? rate on campus? Like how many students are impacted? Do you have national stats or even with your own campus? Yeah, I can tell you about both. So nationwide, we've got some varying statistics because this isn't something that every school measures like, you know, your demographics or your graduation rate. Only some schools do. So there's a couple different measures. One of the most notable is Temple University's Hope Center for College Community and Justice. They're kind of the leaders in some of this research. Their most recent report released in April, May 2019, um, just a few months ago, they indicated that 45% of student, respond, um, student respondents from over 100 different institutions said they had been food insecure in the last 30 days. Um, some other reports, the Government Accountability Office came out with a report in December of 2018, and they did a review of 31 published studies, and they found that out of a majority of those studies, more than, they were reporting that more than 30% of students are food insecure nationwide. So, so those are the national estimates. And like I said, they're varying because it depends um, what schools measure it. But I can tell you very confidently about our campus at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. Um, we have something called the College Student Health Survey, which is a surveillance survey that we disseminate every three years. Um, and it's a randomized survey that goes out to campus. And um, we found that within the last 12 months, nearly one in five students on our campus has worried about running out of food or they have run out of food before they had money to get more. So that's one in five students reported food insecurity. So based on this data, we can estimate that on our campus, that's roughly 8,500 students that might experience food insecurity each year. And I would also add that, you know, as Rebecca noted, that oftentimes the severity of food insecurity exists on a continuum. And students sometimes fall um, in and out of, of status, right? So it might be a certain um, circumstance, uh, an emergency expense, where they have a semester or two where they're not able to make ends meet uh, and their needs, their insecure needs might uh, be impacted during, during that time. So it's not, um, it's sort of an evolving uh, definition and continuum. I'd also add that there's some disparities among those, those groups that, that Rebecca noted. Um, research demonstrates that there's higher prevalence rates among certain marginalized student populations. Mm -hmm. um, and that is, uh, that could include some students of color, um, some low-income students, some first-generation students, 
Uh, there's been some research on LGBT and, and trans student populations that seems to suggest that some students have higher rates. So um, it, it's not like this issue impacts everyone equally. Certainly that's not the case. And so some of us are, are really looking at how do we best meet the needs of, of, a, of a growing diverse student population across our campuses, knowing that not all students have same, the same access and privileges as, as others. And so we really feel it's important that student affairs educators, uh, not just uh, those that serve as advisors or counselors, uh, but also faculty administrators um, and key decision makers become more aware of this issue because as the prevalence rates indicate, um, it is a, it's a serious issue impacting most college campuses. And so, again, not to beat the dead horse about not hearing about it in that way, but one of the things was that when you're dealing with food insecurity, it's all, it's pretty much, I would say, and I'm just throwing out my own little number, 95% also they're having home insecurity issues as well. And so kind of kind of goes hand in hand. Well, I was just going to say, I could add on to that, that that's a lot of our work is we really don't tease these two apart, food and housing insecurity. We look at them together because um, we found through talking with students, you're, you hit the nail on the head. Um, it's really for us, a lot of students talk about the high cost of housing is really what's contributing to their food insecurity because many students that we interview say they'll pay their, their bills first. They'll pay tuition so that they can go to school. They'll pay their rent because if you don't pay rent, you don't have a place to stay. And then they use whatever's left over for food. So most students talked about how food is last on their priority list. Oftentimes they don't really budget for it. They just use what money they have and then of course, the money runs out because, you know, when a bill's in your face, you have to pay it off. And then, but as the month goes on, your money um, runs out by the time that you're trying to purchase food. So you're exactly right that you can't really separate the two. And what's really interesting about it, because I know up at Cal State Humboldt, there's an issue with just um, renters wanting to even rent to students. And so you have this this couch surfing situation happening in addition to the food situation. Like you said, I mean, you have to get that roof over your head and then hopefully you eat. And I was talking to a student, which was really interesting. And they say that they go to the, get this, this is how they solve their issue. They go to the university calendar. They go to all the programs in hopes that there's some kind of food being served. So they'll look at about noon and see, okay, who has some kind of workshop at noon? And they'll go so they, they can eat. And then who has a workshop at five or six? They'll go so that they can eat. And I thought that is, I mean, it's, it's clever, <laughs> you know, per se, but I mean, it's, it's sad that it has to come to that. And so before, you know, this became a term, I remember like sometimes I'd say, hey, such and such. They say, yeah, I said, I'm going downstairs. Anybody want something, you know, and I'll buy a student some food. You know, there's a Carl's Jr. or I guess in your part of town, um, this I can't remember the name of the place with the star, but they call them Carl's Juniors here. But, you know, I'd go down and I'd buy a number two or number three for a couple students. It was no big deal, but it wasn't like they looked like they were hungry. I just knew that as a student, you know, sometimes you just don't have money on that day or you're waiting for that paycheck. But I never equated it to that possibility that that student really has some food insecurity problems. And this is like this is like late 99, 2000s. And, and when it wasn't a word that you really heard about until other things have emerged. So it's really interesting how this kind of, I won't say popped up, but in the last five to seven years, it has been something that we have to take note of like you said and so what can we do yeah i don't know what have you done i'm assuming because you guys seem to be the pioneers there what have you done on your campus 
to to combat this. Yeah. Um, so there's some things that we've done on our campus that are also pretty pretty common on some other campuses. So uh, we have a food pantry that I started when I was a graduate student and now I'm a full-time staff and I oversee that. And o there are over 700 campus food pantries that are registered on this on our kind of association group. So probably even more smaller pantries efforts that are happening um, at campuses across the country. So a food pantry, and then there's um, a swipe out hunger program that a lot of schools have where students can donate meal passes and then they're given out to students in need, so we have that. Um, emergency grants are really common, and I believe that's pretty popular at most schools, whether it's um, kind of a centralized standard format process or if different colleges or departments within the university have it. So those are some great starting points. Meal scholarships, redistributing leftover foods, lots of things like that are already happening on other campuses and um, they're really important and we're doing those on our campus. But since I come in from a public health background and we work in a public health department, we like we value the emergency response programs. It would be really hard to see all these students struggle and not be able to provide them with some emergency food, but we also really challenge ourselves to think about what are the underlying causes to these issues of food and housing insecurity. So what are the drivers behind this issue? What's causing students to run out of food? And so what we know is that really what it boils down to is this is a financial issue. It's a, a lack of financial resources. So on our campus, um, over a year ago, we convened something that we call the Basic Needs Coalition. And this group um, had 35 different campus partners represented um, from all across our campus, who's, and it was individuals whose work might possibly relate to student food and housing insecurity. And this group has really come together to try to come up with a comprehensive approach to strategically addressing, like I said, those underlying causes. So we like to try to think of policy changes, systems changes, and environmental changes in addition to those emergency programs. So some of the other strategies that we've come up with and some other schools are now starting to adopt. One of our biggest ones is SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. And I know, um, Coralis, you're out in California, so you guys all call it CalFresh, but it's a federal program that provides cash benefits to individuals to help supplement their grocery budget. So we, on our campus, we're working to help inform all students that are eligible that they might be eligible and help them apply for that program. So specifically, one strategy that we have is we know that if a student works work study and meets the other eligibility criteria, they're most likely eligible. So we've partnered with our Office for Student Finance to help send a, in, inform those students who accept that work study job that they might be eligible and help them through the application process. And, and then, like I mentioned, a few other things that we're working on is really trying to address housing. Um, I know lots of campuses, especially out in California, you, you really have experienced the housing crisis as well. We're here in this metro area. We're one of also the only big universities that's so situated so closely to our downtown metropolitan area. And we're feeling the housing crisis and students are really feeling that. So a we're working on a couple different strategies to try to help put pressure on the housing market and bring it down or to help students themselves make informed decisions about where they live and try to find housing that fits their budgets. And then of course, those emergency programs, as much as we like to be as preventative as possible, those emergency programs are necessary. And we realize that short-term housing models out in the community just aren't appropriate for students. They don't really meet their needs. And I'm talking like community homeless shelters. In Minnesota, we have something called coordinated entry, which is a process that really does prioritize individuals who are most in need to get into those um, shelters and 
short-term housing options. And based on those criteria, we just don't think our college students will ever be put at the top of the list. So we're also working on kind of trying to create some short-term housing models that work to help others in our community. So for her example, trying to partner with on-campus housing if they have a free room open or off-campus apartments that maybe if they have a free room or unit open, um, trying to build a partnership so we can get students in there when they're in crisis. I, I would also like to add that I think faculty members have an important role too. And um, sometimes faculty members don't always act <laughs> or react as quickly as they could. And I, I found that, that there's just a lack of awareness amongst faculty members that this is a real issue on, on college campus. And some faculty members might feel like that's not their, their role. I'm, I tend to believe that we, we all have a role, including those of us that, that are in, in those types of positions. And I think, you know, awareness is probably the first step. And then as Rebecca alluded, you know, action is the second step. And so a number of us faculty members have been working with student affairs. And one of the first steps that has been done, I think nationally, but also locally here at, at the University of Minnesota is adding syllabus statements food insecurity syllabus statements that basically says uh, in the in the document that you know if you feel like you might have a concern or at some point you have a situation that would impact your learning in this class feel free to to reach out to the instructor uh, we also work closely with our Office of Student Affairs, and we have a care manager that's part of that uh, unit who's a, a social worker. And what I do is just I cut and paste that statement with the, the contact information right into my, my syllabus. So I think that's really important. I also think it's important for, for faculty members and student affairs educators to be aware of some of those resources that Rebecca mentioned on campus, uh, but also be aware of resources off campus. I think that's really important as, as well, because oftentimes students will need to um, access a, a number of different resources, not just, just one. So you know, I think sometimes faculty members, again, sometimes feel like that's, it's not their business, and we have student affairs people do this. I, I guess I'm of, of the belief that um, it is the business of faculty members, and, and faculty members and, and administrators should care and, and be aware and act on, on this issue. And I think what will help with that is it, that it comes down from the president. Because once the president slash provost, depending on what system, once that happens in those staff meetings and those, you know, the, all the deans are meeting with the provost and they're, you know, talking to the, uh, the deans about it, then those deans will talk to their faculty, their schools. It really, you know, for, for faculty, you know, you are great and there's, I'm sure there's a, quite a few great faculty on your campus because you know them and you guys all do your thing. But you know, the fact that some faculty don't have a clue and like you said, have that thought process that, oh, student affairs handles that. I'm gonna teach this chemistry class from 11 to 1230 and I'm out. You know, that's their thought. And they don't realize that they can donate to the food pantry or whatever the case may be. So it sounds like that we need to do something. We as just we need to talk to the higher administration about the problem and show, you know, show the show the statistics. And, you know, I don't know that to me, this sounds like a good pre-conference. I'm always trying to get everybody to, <laughs> to, to do a session at NASPA. But uh, but this could be, you know, and not the little 75 minutes. I mean, like a good a, a good maybe two or three hour pre-conference and bringing folks together to share, you know, so that, you know, those who are registered would have a, the, you know, you'd have a list of all the things that each of the colleges are doing because this is so is such an issue. Rebecca, when you were talking about the housing and res life. I was wondering when you said, first of all, do the students register for your program? Like for those students for the pantry, do they register per se, or is it more of a anonymous type thing as far as that? 
Yeah, our food pantry is um, open once per month for three days during the last week of the month, and it's just open in our student union, and any student can drop by. There's no no registration, no forms, nothing. They come in, we give them a bag and explain how it works, and it's a grocery shopping model, so they can pick which foods they want from the item, uh, which items they want from the food groups. We purchase majority of our food so that. Um, we buy it from a food bank, so that means we get a very discounted price, and then we can ensure we have enough food to serve the average 800 students we serve in those three days, and to ensure that they get access to high-quality foods. We we don't. I mean, it's you can get fast food, you can get ramen for pretty cheap. So we're trying to supplement their diet with foods that are a little more expensive and a little more difficult to get. And you say that it's only once a month, the last three days of each month. Is that what I heard you say? Correct during the academic year. Yep. So. So that, that obviously is one example. So how, and I guess maybe that's where we go into the higher administration about doing something once a week. Cause we know obviously once a month, I mean, that's great, but how can, I wonder how we, I wonder how, you know, sometimes NASPA helps to push those presidents to do some things. That's why, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, no, and that's great. And, and that's really what launched this coalition that we have, though, is when I would present about the food pantry, everyone does suggest, well, why aren't you open more? And of course, we want to meet the need of students. And if it's there, we, we want to meet them. Um, however, because of our location in this within um, public health, we really like to try to think, to us, success would not be seeing more students. Um, we would really like to see students not have to come to the food pantry. So if we could get every student who's eligible for SNAP enrolled in SNAP, then they get an average of $130 a month to be spent on groceries, and maybe they don't need to pop into the food pantry. So, so that we spend a lot of our time on those prevention efforts, but you are exactly right that higher up administration and um, student affairs really should lead this these efforts. So I mentioned I'm in Boynton Health, but I, I failed to mention that that's under our Office for Student Affairs. So that's, that's who I report on up to. And we feel that we've had such success on our campus because this initiative was really started in and has been supported through our vice provost of student affairs and through all of our higher up staff there really supporting our work and then us as student affairs staff really taking on the initiative. I think it's it's so easy to see student groups doing things or different you know departments doing things here and there. And we noticed that on our campus, some departments were putting up granola bars and some were um, you know, helping students in, in in nice ways, but it gets a little like haphazard and a little um, inequitable. So we, I think that student affairs is the great place for the staff to come together and do what we did, which is really coordinate all those efforts, bring everyone together around the same table um, so that we're having more of a comprehensive, larger strategic impact for all of our students. And when it does come from that higher up, like Michael was saying, hopefully also faculty see the, the importance of it because if, if it's um, the vice provost leading this or stating that this is an important initiative, then more and more people can buy into it. Let me ask this. So is, and I'm not sure, um, is there a way, you know, with, with the cafeterias and the food eateries that we have on all of our campuses, are you guys working with them as far as, you know, at the end of the night, there's so many burgers, they cook too many burgers. Are they just throwing away the food or are they you know, what, how, how can, you know, and we have to think about on the health um, piece of it as well. Is there, is, do you guys work with those eateries on campus and ca and the cafeterias? Yeah, there's lots of efforts around that. That's kind of called food recovery. And I was a part of that group when I was an undergraduate student and we collected food and actually we donated it outside of campus because a couple of years ago when I was an undergrad, this wasn't 
college student food insecurity wasn't really an issue. Like you said, you didn't really know students were hungry on campus. So our campus doesn't specifically do too much of that where we bring it back into campus because a lot of the food that we recover from those dining halls is usually hot food like rice and noodles and things like that or things that need refrigeration. And our, our food pantry capacity can't really hold that. But we've partnered with our dining where they donate, the, the students with the meal plans can donate those, those meal passes and that's been super helpful. But a lot of campuses around the country, I do know, do that food recovery piece and bring it back into campus. There's some things called campus kitchen programs where they collect the food and then they kind of reconstruct a meal out of it and then distribute it back out to students on campus. So lots of schools are, are working in that field, which is a double win because fighting food insecurity and reducing waste is, is really nice. Like you said, it's been a problem that is now hitting our campuses everywhere. And we have got to figure out a way to help these students because again, they've, they've, they've worked hard as far as academically to be there and then, like you said, if you, you know, when you don't have money or when you're in this situation when you can't find housing, I mean, everything is, is, it's just really sad because we have all these stellar students at our schools and they're dealing with this particular, uh, these particular problems. And so I, I just remember, um, even just when I have, I used to have, well, I do have candy on my desk and then I will buy, cause I do a monthly program, cupcakes and conversations with Corliss <laughs> and which, you know, I have students come in and we just talk about what's on their mind. And so I always buy extra. And then I, what I would do is I put the granola bars out. I just figured it, you know, I'll just throw a couple granola bars out. And do you know, folks would snatch those up. And I, it, it didn't dawn on me. It's like, okay, there's something going on. It's not just that. It's the, the hunger piece. And, and, you know, as a college administrator, you know, you always say, oh, you know, we're having food. And it's just packed because we're having food. Um, and, you know, if that's what gets the students there, per se, then that's what gets the students there. But we've also got to realize the underlying situation with each of our students and what can we do as administrators. So I appreciate that you guys are doing something on your campus to make sure um, that this is happening and we've just got to like really take a nationwide stand. I agree, um, Carlos. I'm glad you mentioned the scenario where you ob observe students going to free events that offer food and I think that happens at, at most if not at all campuses uh, because this is such a serious problem. And what we found through some of our research where we've um, qualitative, qualitatively met and talked with students about their, their lived experiences with this issue is there's a lot of anxiety around um, searching out food, managing their anxiety around food and wellness. Many of the students talked about various coping strategies to deal with their hunger. One, obviously, is going to this free events, but you know, going going to bed early so they so they don't have to worry about being hungry. Some of them talked about borrowing meals from from roommates or from others, and it's a it's a real challenge. And students, you know, talked about this idea. One of the findings from our work was a, a theme called learning to work around hunger, and that includes some of these, these coping strategies. And again, it might be easy to assume that, oh, well, this is just part of the college experience, but um, as we stressed earlier, that's, that's not the case. This is, this is a more serious concern that's now being recognized by higher education. And ironically, higher education has been sort of slow to the, to the discussion. You know, if you look at food recovery, you know, research and, and scholarship, you know, it started out in public health, even uh, you know sociology, health health promotion sciences, et cetera, and it's, it hasn't been within the last five to eight years that higher ed has sort of entered this discussion uh, from a scholarly perspective, but also towards a, a practical perspective. And again, I think that's 
really an important piece for, for listeners, student affairs educators, because I feel like they have a role or we all have a role in addressing this problem. Well, this has been a very enlightening situation here. I love the learning to work around hunger um, idea because it kind of lets everybody know that there's an issue. However, those who really need it will then either come to you later or seek out whatever the resources that are discussed. That you know that could totally be a, a topic within the orientation program because you know students you know we don't want to just say you guys are hungry so we have this. It's like learning to work around it. It's kind of it kind of softens the blow. I think, to talking about food insecurity. So that's definitely a wonderful way to ease into it and then, um, you know, pull those students. Those students will then self-identify themselves and come to the different programs like a Cal Fresh and like the ones that you mentioned. So I really like what Michael says, too, about um, faculty really acknowledging this issue and, and connecting with their students and letting them know that they validate that about their students. I, I still get met with resistance a lot of times of people questioning how real of a problem that this this is. And I just like to remind everyone that a couple generations ago, I hear a lot that folks could work in a summer and pay for their year of school. And we're asking something very different of students nowadays. We've done the math here in Minnesota, but it's probably similar to across the states if minimum wage is around the same. So in Minnesota, if a student's working a minimum wage job, um, which is about $9 an hour here and being taxed at about 19%, today they would have to work 70 hours per week for 52 weeks, and that would just be enough money to cover their nine months of tuition. And that's assuming that they're not buying any living expenses over the summer, those three months. So I just like to always remind that, and what Michael has said, and we emphasize it a lot, that it's not so much, yeah, just this rite of passage. It's a lot different today than it used to be. And I've heard from students that even just the perception that their professor cares is really helpful. So if their professor can point them in the direction of the pantry immediately without the student having to ask or sharing those resources or just you know asking the students what's going on if they're asleep in their class and not just assuming that the student was up late all night partying, a lot of times students are working long hours and balancing work and life and have a lot more commitment today than they used to. They might be caring for a child or an aging parent. So lots of things are going on. So just showing that they care and knowing where the resources are um, and again, validating their experience and not kind of questioning the validity of their, their food insecurity is really important. Well, I really appreciate the two of you really breaking this down, and I'm going to be looking forward to a session um, in, 20, in 2020. Um, I mean, I like the topic, learning to work around hunger, you know, colon, food insecurities on your campus. I mean, there it is. There it is. And, and I think we need to talk about it. I think we need to put it in there. You know, we need to put it out there in everybody's faces that this is real. It's a great idea, Corliss. Maybe you should be Maybe you should be the moderator again. You know what? Hey, I'm all over it. I am all over it. So let me know. Okay, Count me good. in, definitely, because because this is this is something that affects us all. It's not just a rural campus. It's not an urban campus. It's an all campus situation, and we have got to get to those administrators to really uh, open up their eyes to see what kinds of things that need to be done and money and monies to be set aside to do it. That part right there, that part. So thank you so much. You guys have a great rest of your day and evening and stay tuned. Thank you so much for being a part of the NASPA podcast. We are excited to bring these expert guests to bring practical insight on how you can be the best student affairs professional possible. So thank you very much. and.
Thanks for listening to Student Affairs Voices from the Field. If you enjoyed your time with us, tell a friend. If there's a topic you want us to discuss, let us know. If you want to be a guest, tell us your story. Email us at savoices at naspa.org. You can find all our info at naspa.org slash savoices. See you next time.